Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we begin a brand new series called Upholding the Truth. It's a study in 1 Timothy. So today let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. When Jesus appeared before Pilate, he made a breathtaking claim. John 18, 37 records him as saying, Everyone who is on the side of truth listens to my voice. Well, Pilate dismissed this statement out of hand with a single question. What is truth? Truth is there such a thing? Depends on who you talk to. And with that, he walked out of the room. Discussion was over. But sadly, what was also over was the ability of a man to search after truth. In a short period of time, he would become a part of the people who condemned the Messiah. And why? Why not? The pressure that was put upon him was enormous, and he had no anchor point in the truth. And so he was swayed by human opinion. There's a story of a man who came to his old friend, a music teacher, and said to him, what's the good news today? And the old teacher was silent for a while, and he contemplated the question, wondering what should be said. And finally, he stood up and walked across the room and picked up a hammer and struck a tuning fork. And the note sounded out, and he said, that's an A. It's an A today. It was an A 5,000 years ago, and it will be an A 10,000 years from now. That's the good news. There's an objective center to music, a standard that's not the purview of everyone's subjective opinion. The old teacher went on to explain himself. He said, the soprano upstairs sings off-key. The tenor across the hall comes out flat on the high notes, and the piano downstairs desperately needs to be tuned. And with that, he struck the note again, and he said, but that, my friend, is an A, and that's the good news for today. And what he was saying was simply this. There's a standard. Everybody may be off. Indeed, everybody may prefer to stay off-key, but the standard remains, and that's the good news. In the end of the day, when all the singers have sung and all the musicians have played, not one of them will judge the tuning fork. Indeed, the tuning fork will judge them. The standard remains. I want to say something about truth. In fact, I want to answer Pilate's sarcastic question. Pilate, I'll tell you what truth is. Truth is that which never needs updating. It never changes. It never morphs. It never needs adjusting. You may learn more about the truth, or you may choose to ignore the truth, but the truth remains. When you encounter the truth, it's true every time, in every time period of history, in every culture, in every language, and continues to remain the same regardless of who likes it or who hates it, who misuses it, or who votes for it or against it. It may be ignored, subverted, and may suffer human perversion, but in the end, it wins out. Just like the tuning fork, it's the standard. Truth will always judge men. Men will not judge the truth. When Alexander Solzhenitsyn was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature for his work of exposing the Soviet Holocaust, and remember, the Soviets had banned his literature at home, and they expelled him from the Soviet Writers' Union, and yet they had not succeeded in silencing his voice. And then came the day when he accepted his award, the Nobel Prize in Literature. He concluded his acceptance speech in Stockholm by quoting a Russian proverb. He said, one word of truth outweighs the whole world. Since God is truth, we could also add one word from God outweighs the whole world. 
We may subvert a generation or even many generations, but in the end, the word of truth, the word of God will stand. Everything else will have fallen, but not this. I'm introducing a new sermon series today. For the next three weeks, I'm going to be taking us through the first three chapters of the book of 1 Timothy. I will at a future time deal with the last three chapters, but the first three chapters of the book are a detailed description of how to choose leaders, gospel-centered leaders who love Jesus, love his gospel, and are centered on the truth. The last three chapters are about the wider church and how the church should be shaped by the gospel and by the truth. I'll get into the details of that book later, but for now, let's learn a little about what gave rise to the book of 1 Timothy. I'm going to start by saying something that should be obvious. 1 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a man named Timothy. So let's start there. Who was this man, Timothy? You know, it was more than a decade before this book was written that Paul first met Timothy. So let's read about that encounter from Acts 16, 1 to 4. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Now, we've got to put all that into context. Paul has just embarked on his second missionary journey. The recent Council of Jerusalem has just made a historic decision that's going to affect the future of the Christian faith. The door is now wide open for the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. And on the basis of that decision, Paul asks Silas to join him, and they're going to revisit some of the newly formed Christian churches in Asia Minor. And then just after this encounter with Timothy came a vision from God that they go to Greece and into Europe. It will be a global Christian church, and Paul is looking for the right people to help him. And when he's introduced to Timothy, he knows this young man is just the kind of person that he's looking for. Over the course of several years, Timothy will serve as an invaluable aid to Paul. For instance, in Acts 17, when Paul is forced to leave Berea because of an angry crowd that's shown up from Thessalonica, it's Timothy who remains and teaches people what Paul would have taught them had he been there. Timothy also goes back to Thessalonica. And the church Paul formed there is helped by Timothy again to become an authentic Christian community. And that seems to have become Timothy's role. Whenever Paul was unable to be in a given place, he sent Timothy to do all the teaching and leadership that Paul was unable to do. Timothy ended up being Paul's representative. And that would have meant that Timothy was well-trained by Paul himself. We have to imagine him in three different roles. So first, he is a student. Paul's teaching him. Second, he's being mentored in that he watches Paul teaching and giving leadership, and he learns to lead like Paul under Paul's watchful care. And then third, we have to imagine him as a man who goes to places where Paul is absent and represents Paul's teaching. Over time, Timothy demonstrates that he's one of Paul's very best ministry partners. And that's the first thing we learn about 1 Timothy. This is a letter written to a man whom Paul has trained and who Paul relies on to do very important ministry work. And so, If you assume that the letter of 1 Timothy is written 
regarding ministry instruction, well, you'd be right. But that's not saying much, not yet. Anyone reading 1 Timothy will find the book contains direction for the ordering of the life of the local church. 1 Timothy is one of three letters written by Paul called the pastoral epistles. They're called pastorals because they contain instructions to Timothy and Titus for the shape and structure of the leadership in a local church. These books answer the question, what is a local church supposed to look like? Look, everyone knows of great churches and churches that are less so. The Church of Jesus Christ has spread the gospel to the world and brought healing to the suffering and brought justice and campaigned against injustice. It's brought medicine, literacy, education, science, music, the arts. It's brought untold good to the human race. And against what critics would say, were the church of Jesus not in this world, human life would have become cheap and life would be much more evil than it presently is. What the church of Jesus has done is proclaim truth and mercy to a world that desperately needs it. We should be thankful to the church of Jesus Christ. But as we also know, when the church stops functioning properly, it's a tragedy. And so let's get back to the book of First Timothy. It was written about A.D. 63. The book of Acts, which is the history of the early church, ends quite abruptly. Paul is sitting in a prison in Rome. He's awaiting trial before Caesar's tribunal, a trial that's going to result in either his execution or his release from prison. And that's the end of the book of Acts. The best evidence that we have is that Paul was released from prison and that the date of his release would have been very near the end of A.D. 62. And then in A.D. 63, Paul now writes 1 Timothy. Allow me to get ahead of myself and read 1 Timothy 1 verse 3. Remember Paul's writing Timothy and he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. We'll get to Timothy's assignment later, that is to take on the false teachers. But Timothy must now do something very important in the city of Ephesus, which is in what we now know to be the nation of Turkey. That's where the adventure of this book begins. Timothy is called upon to fight, yep, to fight for the truth. Back to the Bible Canada broadcasts the teaching of the Bible so the people might grow in their understanding of God's infinite grace and the gift of their salvation. Well, this month in churches and around family tables, many will name the gifts received and added to that perhaps a prayer of praise. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. In preparation for a year of gratitude, we invite you to request your free 2022 scripture calendar based on Dr. Newfeld's book, Making the Most of Your Salvation. The calendar includes inspiring images of the cross, reflections upon the promises in God's word, inspirational quotes from Dr. John, and our daily Bible reading plan. Quantities are limited, so to receive your free copy today or to send a gift to support this Bible teaching ministry, Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. First Timothy contains directions for the local church. What is the mission of the church? How is the church to be governed? What's the task of leaders in the church? 
How should leadership be arranged? How should one handle potential conflicts regarding roles and gender? Who should be allowed into leadership? How should the church organize and handle false teachers who want to assume leadership? Who should decide what gets taught? How should the church direct its finances? What's the role of full-time paid pastors? Now look, these are the kinds of things that often bog a church down, leaving it struggling with the details and leading some members frustrated and angry and even dropping out. People regularly complain about politics in the church. Instead of simply ignoring those questions, Paul tackles them as a matter of great importance. But, but interestingly enough, that's not the reason Paul wrote this book. See, Paul's primary reason for writing is not to help the church smooth out its operations and get unified, as important as that is. The reason he writes is found in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. There's an image here we should grasp. You know, when Kathy and I traveled in either the Middle East or in Greece, we've, we've noticed among the ruins of ancient cities a great many pillars. Now, all of these pillars or columns were developed by the ancient Greeks. And if you're interested, you know, these pillars come in three different styles, Doric, Ionic, and Corinthian. And it refers to certain distinctions that make each style unique. And furthermore, the pillars are often quite beautiful, having various decorations at the top. And then some have smooth poles, some have grooves. Some are actually shaped in such a way that they have the appearance of being straight, even while they're shaped. And whatever else, pillars have but a single function. They are the supporting structure that holds the building or the roof in place. Without the pillars, the roof comes crashing down. That's what Paul's saying. Without the church, the pillar and buttress, truth comes crashing down. And I know that seems strange to many of us because we rightly say, look, the truth upholds the church, and it does. Any church that doesn't know the truth or learn the truth or grow in the truth and know how to apply the truth stops being a Christian church. And so, quite properly, the truth is what gave birth to the church. But that's not the point that Paul is making. He knows that it was the preaching of the truth that created the church, but then it's the role of the church to proclaim the truth. There's something unique about the role of the church. You see, the church is the only mainstay of the truth about God in this world. If you want to know the truth about God, our creator, and the one before whom all of us must one day give an account, then don't go to our educational systems or our political structure, or the media. None of these can do what the church alone can do. Unless the church proclaims the truth about God in Christ, the world will not hear, and the world will remain ignorant and in darkness. So hear me, and don't miss this. The primary task of the church is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, making the truth of Christ known in such a way so that men and women will come to put their trust in Christ is the reason why the church exists. And I say this 
because there are those who argue that, you know, the primary task of the church is feeding the poor, or providing education and health care where needed, or working for peace in the world. You know, as laudable as those goals may be, these things are not the primary goal of the church. These things are an outgrowth of the goal of the church. The church is called upon to proclaim the truth of God in Christ and to defend the truth and to win people to the truth. We do this over a cry of lies and errors. We do this when truth is popular and when it's out of fashion. We do this when tempted to leave out portions of the truth or to make adjustments to the truth to suit the human taste or fancy. We are the pillars who hold up the truth. We alone bring the truth and the light of Christ crucified to a dark and ruined humanity that's filled with Satan's lies and filled with false ways to God and filled with open antagonism to God and and filled with ignorance about God. But darkness and ignorance will not win the day, for the church will continue to hold the truth up high. As long as the pillars hold, the roof of truth will be seen for miles around. Now, go back to 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. You see what Paul said? Since this is the task of the church, it's important that we know how to behave in the household of God. So so why? So let's get practical for a moment. How many of us have heard of churches whose leadership squabbles have become greater than its declaration of truth to a dying world? Churches who politic and fight and jockey for power, and all the while, this becomes more important than the gospel. And this becomes more important than the glory of God in a needy world. I mean, how tragic when that happens. A church becomes locked into internal issues and long ago has stopped asking how to reach a lost world. You see, they've, they've lost track of how they ought to behave. And when we don't know how to behave in the church, this is what happens. So we began to say that the church is the only mainstay of truth about God in the world. Now, let me add something more. Our conduct will determine whether that truth is seen by our culture or not. See, I want you to notice something about 1 Timothy 3.15. Do you notice that the church is called a pillar, a buttress of truth? You might have thought it should have said the pillar, the buttress of truth. Why the indefinite article? Why a buttress of the truth? Now, if you go to a great ancient building, you'll notice not one but many pillars. One pillar alone never held up a magnificent structure of an ancient building. And what Paul has in mind is that every local church is one of those pillars. Now, here we need to make a distinction between the local church and the global church. So let me explain. You know, sometimes when reading the New Testament, the word church refers to the global church. One church for one world, one body of Christ made up of people from every race and nationality and language group and cultural heritage. There is only one church. But most of the time, the New Testament speaks of churches, and here it refers to a local church, one in your town or in the corner of First and Main, the local community of believers in a given location. That's the local church as opposed to the global church. 1 Timothy is addressed not to the global, but to the local church. When Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, he was speaking about the global church. The global church is indestructible, but not the local church. Many local churches have been destroyed. Many local churches have allowed their pillar to crumble. There are places all over the earth that once had a vibrant and growing church, but where today no church remains. 
I know there are many reasons for that. And sometimes it's because, you know, Christians have succumbed to persecution. I could say many things about why that has happened. But sometimes, however, it's false teaching left unchecked, so much so that the gospel has been forgotten. The pillar crumbles. The roof of the truth of the gospel, which the pillar was meant to hold high, comes crashing to the ground. Other times it's been unholy living. Sometimes it's complacency. And still other times it's the lack of clear-sighted leadership. But in all of those cases, a local church that was once vibrant and reaching people for Jesus has lost its power and is in decline and is sinking into irrelevancy. You know, in time, such a church may soon be no more. One example is on a large scale. Well, go to many of the great cathedrals in Europe and witness they're almost empty. All they are now are museum pieces of something that happened there many years ago. One example is on a local level. There are all manner of local churches that once boasted a great and active and vibrant congregation that either through a church fight, change of leadership, change of pastor, or through simply the passing of the torch from one generation to the other, the pillar has eroded, the roof has started to sag, and the community at large no longer thinks that church has a great deal of relevance to them. See, the reason your local church exists is to proclaim the unchanging truth of God in Christ, reconciling himself to the world, to the community in which you live. And it's right there where the adventure of 1 Timothy begins. That's what we're going to learn. And that's why this book is essential for every single believer. Thanks so much, John. You know, it dawns on me that this whole concept of truth is a difficult one in our culture. Many define truth as relative to their own circumstances, but how should the believer understand truth? You've said it well, Ben. I mean, many define truth according to their own circumstance or their own perspective. But when we talk about perspective, we're not talking about truth. So we need to go back to a classic definition of truth. That is, truth stands independent of our perspective. And uh, therefore, I mean, we're left with this wonderful, wonderful truth, if you will, that God has revealed truth, and our job is to submit. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Upholding the Truth, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. An integral goal of this ministry is to ensure that Bible teaching you can trust is available to as many people in as many places in as many ways as possible. That's why we emphasize a diversity of unique Bible teaching and engagement resources available through a variety of mediums, radio, online, free mobile applications, YouTube, just to name a few. Providing these resources ensures that anyone who desires to hear the gospel can do so at their convenience and at no cost. We're grateful for the incredible opportunity that's ours to share the gospel in your community, across Canada and around the world. But this couldn't happen without like-minded friends, partners and donors across the country. This Thanksgiving, we say thank you for blessing us and in turn we pray that this ministry continues to bless all those searching to know Jesus better. For more information about Back to the Bible Canada, 
or to offer a gift of support, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.